working at Cornell University as an apple breeder, and she has actually released two varieties of apples that are now available in stores. They're on the East Coast and hopefully across the country in a few years. So without further ado, here's Dr. Brown. Thank you. I'd like to thank the I won't do that again. I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me very much. Uh, it's been wonderful. I came here and people were kind of surprised that an apple breeder's talking in Nebraska. But small world, I'm going to send, um, the chairman said, please send a picture. Last night I'm in Nebraska and I'm at the hotel and I went to the University of Connecticut. So I'm a supporter of the girls basketball team and I start seeing some of the band and my husband teases that if you see Gino, buy him a drink for us. So he's coming out of the elevator and I went, Gino, and I got a picture uh, of me and the UConn uh, basketball coach only because I came here. So thank you for that opportunity. Um, I, I'm going to switch this up a little bit today because I'm a quantitative geneticist by training, but apples are a whole different breed, if you will. And what I hope to convey today is while we do epigenetics and we've sequenced the genome and we're trying to do uh, GWAS and all of this good stuff, I think it's important as plant breeders that we talk about the things that don't get published and the need to be observant and to understand the variation that is inherent in any of the crops that we work on. So relax, there won't be a gel on here, but hopefully you'll see things from the eyes, if you're going to work on a specialty crop and you're going to have to look at variation and explain it to do genomic research, what kind of things we see, and hopefully it'll change your perspective when you think about any of the fanatical people that work on any crop that we, we breed. So I love apple because when you tell people, I don't think soybean breeders or wheat breeders get boxes of oozy fruit in the fall and it's the greatest apple that we've ever eaten, my mother had the greatest apple, and people are fanatical. So that artwork is actually individual apples that'll run the side of a, a hallway. And people are passionate. So when you find out that you're doing apples, my daughter was mortified because I was in Parade Magazine, but we should have crops that we can talk about and explain why it's great that we're improving them. The picture on the bottom, there was an artist that saw the genetic diversity and architecture in some of my plant material. She came and she hired um, a whole bunch of grips and photographers from LA to come out. And she came out in March. And surprisingly, we had no snow cover in upstate New York, which is very unusual. And she was going to buy a snow machine. And I was like, oh my god. But that, she ended up uh, showing at the Pasadena Museum of Modern Art. And I just got a call, phone call from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I won't get in there for my apple breeding or genetic research, but they're going to cover that combination of art and science. So as, as Jeff said, the road to where you lead may be uh, not quite straightforward, but it's always great to take advantage of those opportunities. You know you're in trouble when you can't even agree on a scientific name. Some people call it Nellis domestica. Some people call it Nellis pumila. 
Now, uh, Sylvester, and people get into fighting matches over this. Um, it's an ancient allopolyploid, but it behaves like a diploid. We have uh, triploids, tetraploids, aphthamics. We have 25 to 30 different species, and I can tell you right now that we've just scratched the surface. When I've used malice species by conventional architecture types, even the, 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 the grounds crew were like, oh my god, look at the hybrid vigor, where a variety would normally not branch. We had 21 lateral branches on a young seedling. So we really can look at how diverse hybrids interact. Um, for those of you that have the wonders of recombinant inbred lines, I hate you. I have to do, because of self-incompatibility, I have to do modified backcrossing. I can't even backcross to the same parent. But what is good is I can clonally propagate. So when I find something I like, I can fix it. The origin of apple has a lot of interest from scientists. So you can see that that's the germplasm repository at the station. Malus subversii, apple originated in the Kazakhstan uh, area. And there's been a tremendous exploration. But the public interest in apple came from the book, The Botany of Desire. How many people here read The Botany of Desire? OK, it's surprising. Good for you guys. Um, but what's interesting is it had an apple on, uh, a chapter on apple potato, so you got to read it, um, tulips, and marijuana. And they said that the chapter on marijuana was the most lucid, which I thought was kind of amusing. But it generated a lot of interest in apple and its history, which is, which is pretty rich. We're lucky because we have the USDA germplasm repository at Geneva. It hosts over 2,000 to 3,000 different diverse germplasm. And I was telling somebody that when we started doing epigenetics, we actually had leaders in the field say, you have too much diversity. And you usually don't think that's such a bad thing, but I think I'll open your eyes to how sometimes you want diversity and sometimes you'd like to tone it back a notch. So we have everything from those little tiny Korean apple uh, varieties to that um, probably 20 ounce or um, big apple. So we talk about American as apple pie. And actually, when the settlers came to the States, all apples were the size of crab apples. So Maus fusca, Coronaria, and Angustifolia. And the reason settlers brought apples was not so much that they wanted to replace those beautiful apples that they had from their motherland, but apples were a source of clean drinking fluid. And I, I used to say apples were a source of water. And a lady in the audience said, how do you get water from apples? So what they did is they planted apples, they made the juice, they fermented it, and they had a great uh, situation going. And the Homestead Act required that you plant apples. So the apples were not bred for quality. They, you just wanted to make cider from them. And when the colonists came, a lot of their apples were not adapted. So they started intercrossing with one another. And they were essentially selecting for survival of the fittest. Johnny Appleseed was an actual person, uh, rather strange. If you read any of the books about him, he was uh, a missionary who wanted to spread the word of God. And he did it by bringing apple seeds. Ironically, Johnny Appleseed felt that clonally propagating trees, grafting or budding, was morally wrong. 
but he did do more than almost anybody else. So the, the Disney cartoon actually did a tremendous amount of dissemination of apple seeds throughout the, uh, the eastern part of the country. So the U.S. ended up being a tremendous melting pot. There were 7,000 plus, some say 14,000 plus named varieties. Again, the varieties were selected on their ability to survive. They were used for cider and for dried apples. And they used to, you can tell they weren't bred for quality because they used to actually cramp them down in, in barrels like there. So you know what would happen to modern apples if you clamp them down in barrels. And Japan never had their own apple industry, but we exported varieties like Delicious and Rawls Janet. And that's where their apple industry started. So Fuji is actually from two American varieties. Cornell apple breeding is one of the um, oldest breeding programs in the, in the country, and I'm not sure, from Europe, we started about 1892. We're one of the largest in the world. Um, we're not as well-funded as the New Zealand program, but we're working on it. Um, I'm one of only three full-time breeders in the US, with Minnesota and Washington represented. We use primarily traditional hybridizations, um, but we are also using biotechnology approaches, um, but with the retirement of someone that's lessened. And I found after doing many interviews that consumers really don't know the difference between classical hybridization and transgenics or GMOs. And I was interviewed for the Wall Street Journal and people were saying, stop with the frankenfoods when it was just traditional hybrids. So I started using my own family, even though this is an old picture of my kids, that I always say, how many of you are parents? So when people raise their hand, I said, well, then you've done genetic modification. Some of it works out better than others. <laughs> Some of those genes from your husband's side of the family come through loud and clear. But people can understand genetic similarity and genetic differences. And that's probably been one of my, my better analogies. And a lesson to, to, to you guys is, I took a course on communicating science to lay audiences. And hopefully you'll agree that it was effective, but I would encourage anybody at any stage of your career to take it because it's those simple analogies that can make a connection with people because if they're parents, they kind of get what you mean about those bad genes. We have many well-known varieties, Empire, Cortland, um, uh, John of Gold, and McCowan. Don't pronounce it McCoon. You can tell you're not from upstate New York if you say McCoon instead of McCowan. Um, these varieties show that when an apple variety is popular, it can last 100 years. So Cortland's going to be an heirloom variety. It's going to be 100 years old. It's pretty amazing, but it shows the challenge for bringing in new stuff. Apple crossing. I wish I worked on small plants in a greenhouse, nice conditions, but we're out in the orchard when it's cold, we're on ladders. TV companies go and say, could you look happy? <laughs> well, I could. <laughs> So we have to collect pollen at that balloon stage. And when I was talking to somebody before, we have to collect it before the bees come because the bees are bringing pollen from outside sources. We use any labor we can get to screen or comb the pollen off. 
Um, my kids hate the job, but they've taken it as part of living with me. Um, and then the other part we remove with our fingernails. The petals and the stamens come off all at once, and that produces a female parent. And we cross a pollen parent by a seed parent. In an apple that you get from the grocery store, if you cut it open, every single fruit is different. Every single seedling from that fruit is not a Macintosh, but it's a unique hybrid. And what I do is I control the two parents, so every fruit on a, on a tree the fruit is all Macintosh or whatever I'm choosing, but every single hybrid, every single seed is a different hybrid of the same two parents, and I can plant out thousands. Then, when I see a seedling I like, I plant seedlings on their own roots in about four years, the fruit, and then I can take, uh, I have a tree that I love the fruit on, and I can take buds, and I can make identical copies by budding onto a rootstock. So that shows where we take a bud, we fit it in so the vascular system works. We wait until it heals. We cut off the top part, and now we have a root system on the bottom that's been bred for productivity or dwarfing, and the top part is my variety. So any variety that you get from the grocery store descends from that original clone being uh, propagated over and over again. Um, however, as I said before, breeding apples is not for the faint of heart. They are not Arabidopsis by any stretch of the imagination. They're large trees. They take a long time to fruit. They're as expensive as anything. I'd give $20 for a, a plot to do. I, I'd, I'd trade on that. But look at the diversity. So we have tremendous diversity, not just for the sizes, shapes, and colors, but textures, flavors. And I promise the group here that hosted me next year, you'll get a sample pack of some of the apples that'll blow you, blow you away with flavors. But that's also the ugly. So we can have scab resistant and bad disorders. I can't win the lottery, but I can cross two large apple fruited, fruited apples together and get progeny that every fruit is the size of quarter. Not fair. I didn't want them to be that size. <laughs> So, um, but I spoke to a grower and he said, oh, I can call them apple nuggets so we'll make a fortune. <laughs> so again, we have to look at the positives, but there's some things, depending on genetic background, we have markers for some traits, but the other markers are not robust because they haven't been tested in different genetic backgrounds. Also, apples are characterized by variability. And if you're working on a specialty crop and you don't have an appreciation for variability, the likelihood of you getting good results in a physiology study, in a genetic study, in a um, marker uh, trait association study is going to be complicated. So we have an effect of the location within the tree, the cluster. There's five to six flowers. It depends on whether it's the king flower, the best flower, or the laterals. So if you do in gene expression studies, that's important to do. Crop load effects, harvest time. You harvest differently if you're harvesting for use in your own uh, cooking or uh, you pick versus whether you're going to store it. And the age of the tree and the rootstock. And people do not take this into account when they do a lot of the genetic studies. Maturity. We, um, when I first came on the job, we used to harvest stuff, and most breeders would tend to harvest stuff that was eating ripe. The consumer never gets an apple that was picked eating ripe. They get something that was picked for storage. 
So starch iodine just shows you the conversion of starch. Um, so when it's not converted, the fruits are black when you cut them. When it's converted, it's, uh, it's lighter. And we use this to make progress in, in looking at firmness aspects. Again, the position in the cluster. Somebody was doing a gene expression study and using only the kings. But when you take the king off, it's affecting the lateral fruits that remain. So you have to think about what you're doing and how you're setting up the experiment. I'm showing you the ugly. I'm showing you the dirty laundry that nobody ever shows you. Aren't you lucky? <laughs> um, this is an example of two very good quality apples that I crossed. We see that large stem size is dominant in this case. Every single one has long fruit stem size, that's not so good because you want them far enough from the tree to not fall off. But when stems are too long, they puncture the other fruit. Neither parent had that russeting that you see that's affecting this. So if we're trying to find molecular markers, we have to be careful of those traits that are influenced heavily by the environment and aren't always going to be expressed in different locations at different times. This is an example of different progenies, different variation. So the, the cross of Honeycrisp by 752 is where my Snapdragon variety came from. It shows, like many uh, populations in apple, that small fruit size tends to be a limiting factor. But then you can end up with um, a veritable candy store of different traits. The other population, Brayburn by 674, we made to produce high vitamin C. And that was where the other variety came. But you can see in that population, you're not getting segregation for fruits, fruit, fruit shape or that much for color. The two parents were red. And the varieties obviously are segregating for yellow. Another simple case, skin color. Simple Mendelian trait. Red's dominant to yellow. Makes sense. OK, so that should be simple. Okay, so there's still arguments about this. We like to argue an apple. Um, we developed a marker for red and yellow apples, but it didn't work for green. It's really hard to get green apples. They end up being very ugly looking. Um, just like every place else, MIB transcription factors are being important in apple color. But some are influenced by cold. Some are influenced by light. And so even sorting that out is getting interesting. We're looking at overexpression with transgenic studies. But I'd like you to look at the bottom two fruit. And can anybody tell me what is the difference between the two of them? One's more mature than the other. Same apple, same variety. And so you could make a, a guess that color pattern difference, but it's maturity. So because color is so influenced by light and temperatures, we really have to take that into consideration in our studies. Red flesh color. Every red fleshed, red fruited uh, apple dates back to Malus Nidzwitskiana from um, the Kazakhstan re region. Really beautiful. And a lot of people are starting to look at this for healthier, antioxidant-rich apples. But you have to want to be able to eat them. When you talked about tannins and, and selection, there's tannins in these suckers. So they're really beautiful. But you know, I guess if you do kale shakes or pomegranate seeds, Maybe this will be the next best thing, but I am not so convinced. However, this was one of our varieties, and it does make a beautiful garnish. So if it doesn't quite work out how you want, you can always make something better. 
I'm a member of Rosebreed, which is a cooperative of breeders in the rosaceous crops. Um, there's more of us, but still not enough to fill half of this room. But what was good about this is it gave us a common language and it caused us to talk more openly and more honestly. So we developed standardized phenotyping and prioritization after a lot of argument. We had a large material base like what's been happening in corn and soybean and everything else where we looked at, we took breeding populations, common core populations. We found out our pedigrees were a mess where we thought we had known pedigrees and I guess a couple bees came in because they were not what they said they were. That alone was really helpful. And we were able to get um, alleles characterized for important breeding material. Um, so we are looking at incorrect records, uh, genetic testing to support mostly at this point parent decisions rather than seedling because of the costs associated. And Rosebreed 2 will be submitted soon. And like anything, um, by the time you divvy up the money, there's not that much, but it's a great project. And I sure hope the next one gets funded. Uh, opportunities. Um, we have tremendous antioxidants in apple. And there is so much diversity that one apple um, compared to another can have 30-fold beneficial antioxidants. And so, but again, we need to know which ones are bioavailable. People have spent a lifetime working on an uh, antioxidant that is excreted. So we know that quercetin 3-glucoside and others are important, and we have a breeding program that's running on it. But we have to pay attention to how they're isolated, where they're located, what are the be best methods. Um, browning. Um, Non-browning apples, this one actually happened because a machine broke and we found that New York 674 didn't brown, has low levels of the enzyme required for browning. I used it in crosses and was able to produce even better non-browning. And non-browning is a big industry, 55 million pounds for apple dippers every year. Uh, it revolutionized our industry. And the serving size for schools and jails, I think, is half an apple. At daycare, you don't want knives. At jails, you don't want knives. So breeding for the sliced market is not a bad thing to do. Um, apple architecture. I had a cross of a columnar, non-branching, and a weeping, both dominant genes. So I used to ask classes, what would you get when you cross columnar by weeping? And they said, we don't know. But that's the great part of having a program like mine. I can make that cross. And we ended up with plants that were flat on the ground. We uh, ended up with plants that I call the cousin it, that's like a shrub. Um, you can see the variation. Those are sister seedlings, uh, same genetics, but difference in terms of architecture. And even when Mendel looked at genetic dwarfs, he didn't say that every single dwarf is going to be different. So there is no genetic dwarf. There's differences in branching and everything else. Makes it fun, but makes it challenging. Apple quality. Um, we know that crispness is the most important trait for an apple for an apple consumer. And there's been crazy studies where they've tried to measure the sound of an apple when you bite it. But fortunately, I had a student that was patient enough to do little cubes of apple, and we could correlate that test with the crispness that people crave. We've increased bricks. Um, we've increased um, acid imbalance with that bricks. And we've increased flavors. We have um, 
really subtle, good flavors that are not what you expect when you bite into an apple. I'm not talking the grapple, the grape-infused apple that just has Concord grape flavor, but really complex, spicy uh, differences for the consumers of the future. So we have the apple sequence. Velasco did it, 57,000 genes. Um, again, we're still debating whether Melissa is the progenitor. Uh, we know we have a ton of duplication, a ton of transposons, um, but it's aiding so many populations. Disease resistance is something that we can get from malice species, but also from different materials. So we have fire blight resistance, but there's a new strain, uh, strep-resistant strain of fire blight. We have powdery mildew and apple scab. We have good sources of resistance that we could use, and the next rosebreed project is going to uh, characterize that. Food safety. In 1990, I'm going to say, does anybody remember the Alar scare? Meryl Streep is hated by the apple industry because she talked about Alar and it being a carcinogen and apple sales tanked. And this is the kind of um, literature that we had. And that was when growers were taught how to t talk to the public because you find that you use, when you talked about not mentioning jargon with QTLs, or um, I think we all use jargon, and, and this helped us come together as an industry and say, well, we're not going to use this compound even though it didn't have health effects, but we're going to be ready for the next concern. Uh, insect resistance. I wanted to do insect resistance, and somebody is going to do this, but I actually Pay attention to people that are knowledgeable. Not always. You can, you can question whether they know what they're doing. But if they say, I said, what about breeding for insect resistance? And my colleague said, do you want to get tenure? And I wanted to get tenure. So I did not do insect resistance breeding. Getting into it now, but it's somebody else's tenure decision. But she's going to make it. So I think that the newer tools help it um, be more logical right now. We have robust regeneration and transformation systems, which is really applicable in, in Apple. We have to be careful that the gene expression is relative throughout. Um, at Cornell and other places, transgenic apples are being looked at. Non-browning, the Arctic series of apples, are in controversy right now. And not because they're not a good product, but that the trait that they decided to engineer isn't enough benefit to consumers. So consumers are saying, we already have non-browning apples. Why do we need a transgenic one? We're looking at gibberellin, flowering time, disease resistance, using native genes. And whether this results in a product or not, we found when we tried to put chitinase into an apple, the apples became to work because the cost of producing all that uh, compound was too much. Um, I'm fascinated about apple Oral allergens, if you're allergic to white birch, you tend to be allergic to apples. I didn't know it was a problem, but it is. And as breeders and as geneticists and um, uh, GMO modification, we have to understand where the allergens exist. Some are in the skin, some are in the flesh, some are heat insensitive, some aren't. Look at their connection with disease and stress resistance. And in the Netherlands, they actually fund for this research because people have anaphylactic reactions to apples. Um, I love when you look at old literature and you find that it's still relevant. So as you can tell from my talk, I love some of the quirky stuff. 
So in 1915, the Spencer Seed Company said, we're going to revolutionize apples, and we're going to create apples without a core. And I thought that was a neat advertisement, but when I asked college kids, what would you change about apples, they say, no core. And I always go, come on, you know, how lazy, how, how bad is a core? And then I came home and I said to my kids, they say they want apples without cores. And my kids went, that would be so cool. We're not going to get there through the seedless apple tree. But what it did happen is Yao, who did get the proceedings of National Academy of Sciences and not through artwork, looked at apetalous apples and found that they were very similar to a gene in Arabidopsis. And he found that all of them shared a common retrotransposon and a particular intron, and that resulted in Parthenocarpi. And so we have the ability, we have a lot of mutations that we could use with a new set of eyes to find out gene function in some things. We're going to look at genetic sports and common mutations because I talked about diversity. And genetic sports allow us to have the closest thing to an inbred line because there are one or two key traits that are different. So Gala, when it started as an apple, was a bicolored apple, as was Delicious. Delicious was like that um, striped apple I showed you. And mutations occurred for color. As you chase mutations for color, that the pathway for color and volatile production can be impacted. So we get more colored apples, but we get less flavor components. So if we had the ability to understand what turns on or turns off that, that transposon movement, it would be huge uh, for the columnar tree, but also for fruit color. Uh, and that's, uh, I thought I had taken that one out. So we'd like to understand what's going on with spur habit, because that revolutionized the industry. So the two new varieties from Cornell, um, Snapdragon and Ruby Frost, um, were Snapdragon was 12 years from making the cross to commercialization. And I explained to most audiences that work with tomatoes or Arabidopsis go, 12 years to that poor thing. But I'm like, 12 years? That's rocket science for fruit breeders. And it's in the grocery store. So 12 years from making the cross to having it commercialized. Ruby Frost, uh, I think, was about 17 years. Snapdragon has Honeycrisp as one parent, but does not have many of the faults that Honeycrisp has, even though it's a great apple. And Ruby Frost combines good non-browning um, with also good vitamin C. And we have had grower feedback on that. When we started commercializing varieties, I learned about IP, I learned about lawyers, I learned about free press, that article in the Good Fruit Grower, they charge $10,000, I think, for a one-page advertisement, and I got a two-page coverage for free. So um, we had the opportunity for 674 growers in our industry to join, to be a member of a managed variety where only New York growers would get it. And they uh, did join. That was a meeting with the Commissioner of Agriculture and our uh, college leadership and growers. And the Commissioner of Ag said, Susan, if I had to go to the governor and tell him you sold it to another state, it's going to be a long walk. So this is an example of how a public-private partnership can work. We're going to have other releases that are open to everybody, and that will even the playing field. The big time. Seeing your stuff in a grocery store. My husband snuck in and took the picture because the grocery store 
hates when people take pictures, but those are my apples. Um, and usually you're retired as an apple reader before you can say that. And then I hate to admit it, but I, I talk about proceedings, National Academy of Sciences. I made the front cover of the American Fruit Grower. And that was recognition that the industry finds what we're doing important. And so that was, uh, that was pretty special. Um, I think it's important for any researcher to think outside the box. And every breeding program has material that plant physiologists could find of interest. So I spoke at a plant physiology meeting. That isn't a photoshopped apple with the lenticels shaped like stars. It, the lenticels blow out. We don't know why, but that would be, I mean, talk about distinctive. We've grown columnar apples in cages, uh, a, a graduate student project, because we found that insects don't know enough when they see a cage to go, go up and over so you can have a sunlight coming in and grow trees completely um, pesticide-free. Not for commercial production, but for homeowners. Uh, an old-fashioned russet. Everybody talks about old heirloom varieties. Well, russets were good because you could put them in a box in your, your cellar and have them stay forever. But they weren't necessarily the best quality. But russet has a nutty-like texture and, and flavor that would be interesting to study from a genetic perspective. And so we want to make sure we have a healthy product that kids need to eat more of. And we, not, we need to get more of that wow factor in. Future areas, climate change. I spoke at the Cornell Symposium in 2012, and that was my, my we were frosted out. Earliest spring in the past 20, 50 years, um, major temperature to grapes, so the discussion about wheat changing and everything else, it's real. And that, as breeders, we have to take that into consideration. Um, many people, it's impossible to list everybody that has benefited my program and the collaborations that have occurred, but um, I really do mean it when I say that the students that have had, uh, the postdocs, the visiting scientists have been tremendous. And you notice that you don't see any NSF funding, but one of these days. If you haven't ever been to the Finger Lakes, please consider it for a, a trip. This is probably a... Um, this is an aerial shot of the Finger Lakes. They said that God put, the Indians say, God put his hand down on the earth. And the imprints of his fingers are the Finger Lakes. We're at the top of one of the lakes uh, at Geneva. Cornell is at the bottom. Um, beautiful area. Um, and we are not breeding apple trees to not have leaves. But I just thought this was such a neat shot that one of my colleagues took. Uh, I say that we're not breeding apple trees without leaves because I spoke at another group and they were like, how'd you do that? We waited for fall. And so the leaves came off and the apples stayed on. Um, can teach you a little bit about abscission as well. So this was meant to be kind of lighthearted, but to show you things that you don't necessarily see at scientific meetings, the excitement and the passion that we all have for the crops that we work on, um, some information about why we do what we do, and if there's time, I'd be glad to answer any questions, but if there's not, I thank you. We have a time for questions, so. Thank you for your presentation. I have a question. You were talking about the wow factor 
in um, peaches, for example, you see um, kind of unusual shapes on the market nowadays, like the donut-shaped peaches. Um, do you actually breed for you know unusual characteristics like this too? Is this something uh, growers might be interested in? Um, I mean, I'm talking about apple growers. Um, excellent question, and, and I'm smiling because at Rutgers, I first got introduced to UFO. The Pin Two peaches came from China, and there was a problem because there wasn't flesh at the base of the stem. And my advisor at the time crossed a pointed peach, which isn't good because the point bruises, by the peen two when it was able to fill in. And I was shocked that it took so long for those, it took 20, 30 years for those to become popular. We need to make sure it's a size or shape that doesn't bruise. So we have a variety that's equivalent of a modern sheep's nose. It's very lobed. People like it for a retail stand, but it could never make it on a wholesale stand. So yes, uh, we are looking at different shapes, but it has to be within the confines of whether a grower is going to make make a profit on it without causing undue harm to uh, to the fruit quality. Any other questions? And I didn't say it, which as a breeder I should. Our top priority in breeding apples is quality to the consumers. Um, and that's something that we're, we're going to stake our reputation on. So I was curious, like, how much the rootstock affects, like, the taste or the shapes or the color? Uh, and, and, rootstocks yeah. are huge. And I always say I'm so lucky because I have a colleague, Gennaro Fazio, that gets as excited about the root system as I do about the fruiting part. And I'm sorry, roots just don't do it for me um, because we get to eat the fruit. But yes, they, they affect the time that they mature. They affect the size of the tree. Uh, they can affect sugar levels. They can affect um, disease resistance. So um, what I show you is half of what a commercial orchard does. OK, we have time for questions, if anyone has any questions. Jeff? Thanks for the information. You, you talked about one of the varieties took 12 years or whatever to get to market. How much of that time was the developmental phase, and then how much took from the gra grafting phase to get it to marketplace? Okay, and this was the, we were we were lucky. I'll admit this. We planted the seeds on the uh, well. Sometimes you have to be honest. Uh, all times you have to be honest. We planted the seed. The first, sometimes what happens is you have a seedling and you have two apples on it. And I eat one and my technician eats one and we go, oh my god, that was good. And you have another year to wait to see it again. We saw it, we were confident enough on seeing those first fruits that we made multiple copies for our orchard. The next year we saw it again and we were so confident that we made trees and put them out on grower orchards. So by the time we released it in 12 years, we had I think eight years of storage trials on it because we had accelerated it so quickly. That's it, it's very unusual. Mostly, it takes longer than that. Jeff, did you have a question? Jesse, Jesse's question about the rootstock prompted me to think about <clears throat> whether from a, the breeding schemes they use. There's a certain analogy with a hybrid 
um, forming because the product that you're ultimately producing is a combination of a rootstock and a and a scion. Do you do you use uh, ideas of having to test scions on multiple rootstock or vice versa? And is there some kind of uh, hybrid breeding? quality to the way yeah. you develop apples. What, what I would love to see a position at Cornell or someplace else is looking at rootstock scion interactions. I think that that's a huge area of study. But to answer your question simplistically from the breeding standpoint, we try apple trees differ in, in vigor. And if you put a strong variety on a weak rootstock, that's what a grower is going to do. So yes, because sometimes you can't tell the vigor of a variety, we'll test it on different rootstocks. And then when we give it out to the growers, we can say, it's our recommendation that you use this particular rootstock. I don't know if that answers your question. Just a comment on this app, Susan. This is very helpful, too, because no more falls from ladders. No more calls from what? Ladders. <laughs> True. And that is an occupational hazard. I have one more question. Sure. Um, what's the actual, the actual apple weight, the maximum apple weight you're breeding for? When you go to a store and you see the new variety, Honeycrisp, for example, sometimes you see an apple that might weigh a pound or maybe even more than a pound. Is this something the orchard grower, you know, the apple grower is interested in or even the consumers? Sometimes I wonder if these apples, you know, aren't actually too big. And we, we get that a lot from parents too because when you have a small apple and a small kid, it makes sense. Whereas if you're trying to, um, to answer the question specifically, we do not set a specific size limitation. We know what's too small and we know what's too big. The problem is all of that's influenced by crop load. So if you have a low crop, you tend to get pumpkins. And if you have a heavy crop, then you tend to get smaller. But where the disconnect is, is grocery stores sell, pay a premium for the larger sizes. And they're convinced that that's what consumers want. And so if that is something that you find that you don't like, talk to the produce manager. Um, and I think that we we can make a lot. It's easier to make small apples. Um, it's making those big apples that have a higher profit margin that can be difficult. One more question. Uh, thank you. Uh, this might be a naive question, but have you ever tried to explore the usefulness of double haploid technology in your breeding program? Why or why not? No, no, I'm, I'm smiling because you're, you're, I did a double haploid project for my seminar, the graduate student seminar at Rutgers. And I wrote to a person that had done double haploids in, uh, I think, Peach or something. And just before my seminar, I got his letter. And he said, perhaps you might consider another topic. <laughs> but we've gotten back to it. So yes, double haploids are very much being looked at. We've sequenced a double haploid, which for, for such a complex variety like apple. So we are looking at it, but it took 30 years to get to that point. Yeah, my question is about uh, uh, for the breeding process, you know, the trees, longer than crops, we have winter nursery to save time. 
How about the airport breeding process? Is there an option to save time? Um, if anyone wants to host me in someplace nice and <laughs> help me with the breeding program, I would love it. Right now, um, Chile and, um, and New Zealand would be the logical choices. Um, money is a factor. Thank you very much for your attention. One more. One more. Oh, okay. We got an online question. Um, uh, so, uh, how many crosses can you make in one day on average, and how many uh, do you make in one crossing season? Ah, okay. So we shoot for 10,000 seeds after selection for scab and other things. So that means conservatively 25% more than the the 10. And it, if you were with me in Geneva, I would say, who can volunteer during pollination season? Um, it's as many people as we can get. So we can do entire trees. Um, the more help we have, the more crosses we make. And I've been known to look at trees blooming after our season in neighbors' yards. I've stopped from going into the neighbors' yards to start working on their tree. But it's limited by about an eight-day period which really limits it, but we usually do get thousands and thousands of seeds. So it's nice. You do one flower and you can get up to 10 seeds. Thank okay. you very much. Let's thank Dr. Brown one more time. And our next speaker is Dr. Ryan.